I was going to tell you a very fascinating um, incident that happened to me, which is part of the parasha of Rachel, if you would want to hear it. It's up to yeah. you. You're okay, you want to hear it? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> um, in, uh, at the end of 1994, my niece in Israel was getting married in February of 1995. Uh, and of course, my wife wanted to go to the wedding but I was not really interested. I just didn't feel that I wanted to go at that point in time, you see, because it means going from, of course, Brooklyn to, uh, to uh, Eretz Israel, and I didn't think the time was right. Anyway, so what my wife did, which was very interesting, is she got a safe of the Baba Sali. Okay? And we all know who the Baba Sali is, right? Yeah. yeah. Israel of Uchatzerah. He was an incredible person. He was a tremendous Balmoy face, which means he was a miracle worker. Anyway, so she got the safe and she said to me, why don't you take a look at some of this? It was a safe about his acts, you know, incidents and what he did, and you know, in terms of uh, the people he helped out and so on, you know. So anyway, so I started, I looked at it, I started reading it, and um, I began to read it. And it talked about his great-great-grandfather, who's named, I think, Shmuel, Al- uh, Shmuel Elbaz. That was his name. And that was the Baba Sali's great-great-grandfather, a long time ago, who was a very big Mikubal, a very big Kabbalah. And he was a student, I think, of, and a student of the student of Rab Chaim Vital who was the major student, of course, of the Ari. Anyway, the story there goes that he was asked, he lived in Israel, he was asked to go collect money to con- in Constantinople, which is Turkey, Istanbul. Uh, but, uh, you know, so what he did is that he went to Yafo, because that's where the ships left. And he went over, he saw there was a ship going to Constantinople, Istanbul, and he asked, uh, of course, the captain, he wanted to go on. So the captain said, I'm sorry, we have no room. So he said, okay, I hear. And the captain said, no, we can't take you. So what he did is he went to the side, let's say about, you know, a couple of hundred feet away near the port. And he opened up, he rolled open a carpet. And what he did is he pronounced a divine name and the carpet rose from the ground with him on it and he waited until the ship left and he followed the ship over the Mediterranean and this is a really spooky story he followed the ship over the Mediterranean and on the way to Turkey which is not that far but maybe it's a couple of days away one of the the uh, you know the uh, person who sees lookout lookout guy all of a sudden, he takes a look, and he sees this guy on a carpet over the waves, following them. So, of course, he called the captain, and the captain went crazy, because he realized who it was, because he used a telescope, and he realized that this is incredible. I mean, the guy's on a flying carpet, you know, over the, over the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. So he waves him to come on board, but uh, uh, Shmuel Elbaz refused. And in any case, 
he obviously needed the ship to guide him to, to Constantinople. So the ship docked, and, and what he did is he made the carpet go about a half a mile away because he didn't want people to know what he just did, which is incredible, you see. But the interesting thing is that word got out anyway because obviously somebody saw him land, and of course they all surrounded him for brachot, and it was just incredible. Anyway, and because of that incident, they called Shmuel Elbaz Avuchatzero, master of the carpet. That's where the family gets its name, by the way. Uh, so the story is probably true because that's exactly where they got the name of Avuchatzero. You see, master of the carpet. In any case, um, anyway. So I, I so obviously we're talking about an incredibly great person. I'm continuing reading, so you already can begin to see what type of family the Abu Chatseras are. Anyway, I'm continuing reading this, and then I read about Yaakov Abu Chatsera. He is called the Abir Yaakov. He was one of the greatest of the Abu Chatseras. He was a tremendous Balmephis, without going into all the miracles he did. In fact, they called him the Baal Shem Tov of the East. You know, the Baal Shem Tov was known as a miracle worker. So they called Yaakov Abu Chatzera, the Abba Yaakov, the, uh, the uh, Baal Shem Tov of the East. That's how great he was. Incredible uh, Mekubal. Anyway, so the story continues about him, and that's really what I want to focus on. That he wanted to go to Eretz Israel. Okay? And he wanted to always go to Eretz Israel. So what happened is that he finally decided, I'm going, I think this was 1883. And he went to, he traveled, you know, now he lived in Morocco. So he traveled east to go to Eretz Israel, because, you know, from Morocco to Israel, you know, you go over Tunisia and then Libya, and then after Libya is Egypt, then, you, of course, you go into Eretz Israel. So he went into Eretz Israel. Okay. But the problem was, is that on the way to Israel, he got very sick. And there's a city called Damanhur. Now, Damanhur is 125 miles north of Cairo. That's where it is. So it's near what's called the Nile Delta. The Nile Delta is the, when the Nile River approaches the Mediterranean, it splits into many, many different uh, streams. And that's called the Delta. But anyway, he got very sick in Damanhur on the way to Israel. In fact, he got so sick, he died. So he died in Damanhur, and they buried him in Damanhur. This is Rabbi Yaakov of Now, they, they, at that point in time, there broke out a tremendous argument between the Jews of Damanhur, because there were a lot of Jews in Egypt at that time, and the Jews of Morocco, because he originally came from Morocco. And there was an argument where he should be buried. So there was a whole din Torah where he should be buried, but in any case, the Jews of Morocco wanted the Torah, and therefore, they, what, the, what that demanded is that they, re, uh, they uh, remove, uh, they take him out of the, the place they buried him, and bring him back to Morocco. So, a whole bunch of people, you, can, uh, uh, you know, obviously, and they went to where he was buried, temporarily in the cemetery in Damanhur, Egypt, and they unburied him, or they are, you know, they, and so on. And they began to lift him out of the kever. 
the body of Yaakov of Chatzera. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there was a tremendous rainstorm, tremendous storm, just came out of the blue. Because Egypt, you know, Egypt is basically the Middle East, not too much rain, but out of nowhere. So everybody ran for cover, you see, because, uh, you know, so they all ran for cover, so they quickly put the body back, and they all ran for cover, you see? And then what they did is that they thought, then they, they, they thought, okay, maybe next, the next day. So the next day they all come back to the kever, they again undig him, and they want to now, of course, you know, take him to Morocco. But as they are lifting him out of the kever, immediately from a clear sky, all of a sudden there were clouds, and there was a tremendous downpour. And that was the second time that it happened. But it was miraculous because it was like, like five minutes before it was a clear sky. So they realized, or the Besden realized, that God or the heaven does not want him moved from Daman Hor. Okay? So Rabbi Yaakov of is buried in Daman Hor to this day. You see? Now, nobody knew why. Obviously, in 1883, nobody knew why in heaven they don't want him to be lifted out of Damanhur, because the Besden from Morocco, Paskin, that they have to return his body to Morocco, you see. But in any case, nobody knew why at all. But there he lay in Damanhur, okay, until 1942. Now, in 1942, of course, was the war with Germany killing the Jews. And everybody in Israel was frightened. Why? Because they knew that Germany wanted to capture Israel and then kill all the Jews. So therefore, there was a tremendous amount of prayer going on in Israel, all over, uh, you see. And the one who is going to capture Israel is Rommel, Erwin Rommel, who is one of the greatest generals, tremendous military strategist. And he had the German army Okay, in North Africa, the African Corps, and they were going to, they were headed to Israel to take over Israel, and of course, uh, you know, just kill all the Jews. Uh, so all the the Jews in Israel were all praying to God, obviously saying Tehillim, everything. They were going to different Kfarim, you see. And there was a certain individual, and his name was uh, just one second, Alfas. I think his name is Yitzchak Alfas. Anyway. So he was sort of like going around trying to get 10 Jews to go to different kfarim, you know, burial sites in Israel, you see. And that's what he was doing in order that the Jews should, you know, have a schus to avert the decree where the Germans, God forbid, should capture Israel. In any case, so sometime in October of 1942, in the middle of the war, he's, he goes to sleep and he has a vivid dream and in the dream he sees this guy in a white beard and and this is a dream so the uh person in the white in, in the white beard this person in the dream and it's a vivid dream he says to alphas why don't you come to me and pray so uh yitzhak alphas asks him who are you he's who are you in the dream. <clears throat> so 
the person, the, the person in the dream says, I am Yaakov Avuchatzero, right? And I'm buried in Damanhur. Why don't you come to me and pray? You see, that's what he says. Then all of a sudden he woke up and he was stunned. Because that dream was very vivid, you see. And he didn't know what to make of it. So the next morning, it goes to the Chachamim of Jerusalem. And he says, well, what do I do? And he relates the dream. So they tell him, if Yaakov Avuchatzer tells you that you have to come to him, then you must go to Egypt. Because obviously what he's alluding to you is that he can save the Jewish people in Israel. Incredible. So what did he do? He said, okay. So he goes to Gaza. Now in Gaza, there used to be a train that time that used to go, it used to be a train that went from Gaza all the way to uh, uh, Alexandria. Now Alexandria is north of Damanhur. So you have Cairo, then Damanhur, which is about 125 miles north of Cairo, and then about 40 miles north of that, right at the so the, right at the uh, Mediterranean Sea, you have Alexandria, famous place. Uh, so, he get, so he goes to the train station, you see, and the, um, uh, but you're not allowed to go. Why? They did not allow him to get on the train to go to Alexandria. Why? Because uh, they said that the, there's a battle about to begin in El Alamein. El Alamein is slightly west of Damanhur. Okay, and the Germans were about to go into, uh, into that city, right, El Alamein, and there was going to be a major war between the British and the, and the Germans, the Nazis, the Germans, you see. And the problem was is, is England did not want any citizens going there because obviously that was going to be the major battle for, the, uh, for the, uh, Egypt, and that was in Egypt. So he had to go to ask permission of the high commissioner, which he did. So Alfas goes to the high commissioner and he says, look, I, I need to go to Damanhur. So the guy says to him, why do you have to go to Damanhur? So they said to him, so he, uh, so he said to him because he, he tells them why, because there's a tremendous righteous spiritual person buried in Damanhur. And he tells him he came to him in the dream and they want, he wants to go there to pray at his keva, his, his gravesite, to try to avert the German army destroying the Jews in Israel. So the, the, the high commissioner, the English high commissioner, looks at him and he says, look, you have to be out of your mind. It's going to be, that's going to be the front of the war in a couple of days. You see? But he said, listen, if you want to go there, you take your own life at, in risk, fine. So he gave him permission to get on a train. So he thanked him, goes back to the train station, right? And it was supposed to leave the next day at 8 o'clock in the morning, you see. But for whatever reason, he, uh, he davens Vesikin, and Vesikin is 7, so, you know, he wasn't sure if he's going to be able to make the train. Anyway, he davens Vesikin, and he comes to the train station, right? Uh, and the train was supposed to leave at 7. All of a sudden, he sees that the train is still there. So they told him that the train broke some type of an axle, and now they just fixed it. So he's already beginning to see the incredible divine assistance. Gets on the train, 
and he stops in Damanhur, which is before Alexandria. And there were Jews then in 1942 in Alexandria. So what he does is he gathers a whole million of Jews, and they begin to say to Hillim, at the kever of Reb Yaakov of Uchatzera, in 1942, which was October 21st, 1942. And he writes, Al-Fasi, that they prayed the whole night, and they said to him, uh, the whole night, and he says that right before dawn, he saw a tremendous awe, light, coming from the grave. That's what Al-Fasi says. And he said he knew that the prayers of these Jews praying at Yaakov Avuchatzer's gravesite was answered. Whatever that would mean. He succeeded. They succeeded. And guess what? The next day, which is October 22nd, 1942, right? That was the battle of El Alamein. Incredible. And the Germans lost now, the incredible thing, the battle, and the British under Montgomery won. Now, what's incredible about that is that not only did they lose the battle, which means that they now had to push them back through North Africa all the way back to Morocco because they lost, you see, but it also meant, right, that Rommel could not in any way take over Israel because they lost the battle. But what's so significant about that battle was something even more important. It's not only that Rommel could not now take over Israel, you see, and therefore, God forbid, kill all the Jews. It meant also that that was the last, that was the last battle that they were able to fight, and they lost. That means that from every battle after that battle of El Alamein, <clears throat> the Germans lost. Every one. In other words, it was downhill for all the Germans. That's what happened. So we see that Yaakov Avuchatzera, right, succeeded in not only stopping the army of Germany to kill the Jews in Israel, but he actually stopped Germany itself, and they began to lose the war. What a power. Now, remember, the Battle of El Alamein was October 22nd, 1942. The famous Battle of El Alamein, which historians say is the turning point of the war. Now, of course, you know what I'm going to ask you. What was the Hebrew date of October 22, 1942? Yud Aleph Cheshvan. Rochol Imenu site. You see, which is astounding when you think about that. You see. <clears throat> now, this is the history until 1942. Now, now comes my part. I'm reading this in 1994 in December, and I'm reading this, okay? And all of a sudden, I realized something. It's a long time ago, right? It's 26 years ago. And I am, and I read, the, you know, the whole story which I told you, and then all of a sudden, I realized something that the only way that Yaakov Abu Hatzera could have stopped Germany, who really is a Molech, is if he had the koyach of the Mashiach ben Yosef. Only that type of neshama could stop 
the Nazis, Germans, you see? And not that he was the Mashiach ben Yosef, but that he is a shurish, a root neshama of the Mashiach ben Yosef, which means that if the Mashiach would have come in that generation, he would have been designated the Mashiach ben Yosef. Because I once gave a shir, I told you, that the Mashiach ben Yosef and the Mashiach ben David only, can only descend, I told you that was the Yechida of Odom Marishim, that can only descend on an individual who is a root soul of ben Yosef or a root, and a root soul of ben David. Then what's called the Yechida, which is the highest part of the Neshama, can descend, and that is the crown of the Mashiach. So I realized that the only way Rabbi Yaakov Al-Khatzer could have stopped this Amalek, Nazi Germany, was if he was a Shurish of Ben Yosef. Got that? That's what I realized. And then as soon as I realized that, something happened to me. What happened to me? What happened was what something entered into my mind. An unbelievable obsession to go to his kever and to pray at his kever. That's what entered my mind. But it wasn't just a thought. It was a drive that I could not stop. That's called an obsession. In other words, I had to go to the kever in in 1994 or 95 to pray at the gravesite of Rabbi Yaakov in Damanhur. And I could not stop the drive. Now, I happen to be a psychologist, so I realized there's something wrong here, you know, and I was able to realize that I have this unbelievable drive to go to his kever. For, for whatever's happening, Minashamayim, they're forcing me to go to Damanhur. So guess what? I said to my wife, you won, I'm going to Israel with you. Now, the wedding was on February 4th, whatever, in 1995. So, I went to Israel, but I booked tickets to Damanhur. However, before that, it was very unsafe to go to Egypt. Certainly to Damanhur. Because Damanhur is an Arab city. It's like going to Ramallah. And I was incredibly frightened. Why? Because it's a suicide trip. So I didn't know what to do, you see. So I figured, okay, I had an idea. Let me call the Egyptian Tourist Bureau, which, by the way, is in Manhattan. And it's a tourist bureau, obviously, that tries to promote Egyptian tourism. So I called up the, the Egyptian Tourist Bureau, and they put the manager on. So I asked them, I said, I want to go to Damanhur. Is it safe? Because I figured that the tourist bureau would know. So the guy said, safe? No. Why? Because they were murdering at that 1995. They were killing tourists. And not only that, the month that I wanted to go was Ramadan, which is a suicide trip. Because Ramadan is when they really kill everybody. But they were killing all kinds of tourists in America and in Europe. They were killing them. You see? So if you're going to go, not just to Cairo, which is international, 
But I wanted to go to Damanhur, which is an Arab city to all Arabs, you see. Then it's crazy. So, he, so I said, listen to him. I said, listen, I have to go. What should I do? So he said, I'll tell you. Whatever you do, don't take the train from Cairo to Damanhur. You'll never make it. They'll kill you. So here's what he suggested. What you do is when you get off the plane in Cairo, hire a taxi, a private taxi. He'll take you to the Kever, and then he'll take you right back to Cairo. You see? So that's what he's telling me. And I'm, of course, frightened because I realize it's suicide. You know, I'm, I'm in the middle of the Arab country when they're killing tourists during Ramadan. In any case, so what I did is I said to myself, look, I'm going to land in Cairo. I had to go. You, ha- you, you have no idea. It's like a drug addict that you cannot stop the drive. It's incredible. In any case, so what I decided is I'm going to go to the Egyptian consulate, which is also in Manhattan, and I want to get a visa so I don't have to dray around you know, Cairo, I can go straight right through the customs and get a, get a taxi. So that's what I did. I went to the, the Egyptian uh, consulate, and I went in, and of course, they're all Arabs. And remember, uh, this is, you know, they're all Arabs, and they all look at me like, what am I doing here? And, I, and I've got this yarmulke on, you know? So, I, I, they, so the guy asked me, what, what, like, what, what do you want? I said, well, I need a visa to go to Egypt. You see, so obviously since I was Jewish and like what in the world was I doing there? So what they did is they said, okay, the head of the consulate wants to speak to you. Okay, so I go into his room and I'm looking at him and he's looking at me. He says, where do you want to go? I said, so I told him, I I, I want to go to Cairo. And from Cairo, I want to go to Damanhur. So he said, why do you want to go to Damanhur? You see? So he says to me, so I said to him, I, I want to see Abu Hatzira. And he immediately heard of Abu Hatzira because during over the years, many Svadim, many Svadim used to go to visit his kever on, I think, Chof Aleph um, Teves. That's when his Yotzeit is. So I said to him, I want to go and visit uh, the kever and pray at his gravesite. So he said to me, why, did he, why do you want to go to this guy? So I said, because he's a tremendous Kabbalist, which means spiritualist, and he can perform miracles. So he's looking at me, and he never heard of this, but he heard the name Abu Hatzera, you see. So he, so he looks at me and says, okay, if you want to go to Damanhur, then I will give you a visa. And lo and behold, he gave me a visa. It's amazing. So I now had a visa to go to Egypt, and from Egypt to go to Damanhur. So I got on the plane, so I bought tickets, you know, from Israel to Cairo with Air Sinai, because that's the plane that flies there. And guess what? Of course, I came to Israel, and on the next day, or rather, actually it was Wednesday. Actually, it was uh, Wednesday. Yeah, it was Wednesday. So I flew from Cairo, uh, from from, uh, Tel Aviv, you know, Ben-Gurion, I flew on Air Sinai, I flew to Cairo, and then I went through very quickly because I had a visa, it wasn't a problem. And I go outside the airport, and all of a sudden I'm surrounded by these 30 guys. And all these guys are taxis. 
Now, it was, the economy was very bad because they, they were killing tourists in Egypt then, so nobody was hiring them. So they're all screaming at me, you know, you know for, most of them couldn't even speak English. You know, they're trying to get me to hire them as a taxi, you know. So uh, one guy screams out in English, <laughs> where do you want to go? So I, I say back in English, I want to go to Damanhur, right? And all of a sudden, all of them began screaming, Abu Khatsera, Abu Khatsera. Apparently they knew, because there are Jews that go to Rabbi Yaakov Abu Khatsera's Kebab. So I'm looking at these guys, imagine 30 Arabs all screaming at you, and they want to take you. So I didn't know what to do. So I, one guy there, however, was dressed in a nice suit, and he knew English. So he says to me, take me, you know, I have a, a nine-seater van. That's what he tells me. And I have a driver, and he's a tourist guide. You know, he'll take me to Damanhur. And I looked at him, and I said, well, he speaks English, and it's a nine-seater van, so I'll be comfortable. So I hired him to take me to Damanhur, you see. And that was a tremendous uh, muzzle, as you will see shortly. That means uh, there was a tremendous hashgocho that I picked him and nobody else out of 30 people. Anyway, we get into the car, or his van actually, and it's a nine-seater van, could you imagine? And it's just this guy plus his driver. And I'm driving... Uh, so we drove to Damanhur. It took three hours to get to Damanhur because you had to see the road. The road was, it's like, a, it's hard to believe this is a main road. There's only basically two, three lanes in the whole road. You know, uh, one lane go one way, the other way. It's the main road to Damanhur. And, you know, and uh, we're going. And then on the way, they, they stopped for a Coke. They stopped in one of the Arab villages. And I remember I got out, and it was frightening, because all the Arabs were looking at me. Now, I was not wearing yarmulke. I was wearing a hat, you know, that didn't look too Jewish. I made sure. I didn't want to be conspicuous. But they knew I was Jewish. I mean, I had a beard, you know. I mean, I looked obviously Jewish. And they were all looking at me, you know. And who knows what they're thinking. You know, imagine being in the middle of the... There's only Arabs there. We're not talking about being in Israel. But fortunately... They didn't say anything because maybe they saw that I had a driver and a tourist, uh, uh, you know, person. So, you know, they saw I was with the uh, Arabs. Got back in the van and we're headed to Damanhur. We get to Damanhur, right, at about 3.20. I, I left at 12, Cairo, and it took uh, a little more than three hours. So about 3.15, 3.20... We get to the, the kever, but however, the driver did not know where the grave site was in Damanhur. Now, let me tell you about Damanhur. The whole place is mostly sand, and half, the, uh, and half of the roads are donkeys, and the other half is cars. I'm just trying to paint the picture. And they're all Arabs. I mean, really Arabs. There's, not one, there's obviously no, no Jews. It's a complete, it's like Ramallah. And remember, it's Ramadan. So the driver did not know where the grave or the cemetery was, the gravesite was. So he stops and asks the guy, and the guy tells him. So in five minutes, ten minutes later, whatever, we arrived at the gravesite. We get out of the van, and there's the, the house, the small house, right? 
and that was where Abu Khatira was uh, was buried. And in front of the in front of the house was three Egyptian guys with machine guns. They were obviously guarding the keva. So they told us, you cannot go in because you need a permit by the police. So we had to turn around, go back into Damanhur, which is nerve-wracking, obviously. And I went to the police station with my two guys. In five minutes, the police captain of the whole station comes out and he looks at me and he says to me, you want to go to Damanhu? You want to go to Abu Khatsera? I said, yes. You know? And he looks at me and he says, okay. So he gave me a permit right then and there in five minutes, which is incredible hashgokha protest, as I will show you later. Anyway, we all jump in the van and then this guy turns to me and says, excuse me, you need to give me your passport. And obviously, I'm going to give this guy my passport. Obviously, I was very nervous. And then he took the passport of my driver and the tour guide also. He had all three passports in his hand because apparently that was required. And five minutes later, we get to the gravesite and we jump out of the van with the captain of the police station, right? And he motions three guys with machine guns move aside and all I, the, the, the driver, the tour guide, and the captain, we walk into the side, and there he is. There's Rabbi Yaakov Avu Chatzera, right in front of me, the kever itself, right? <clears throat> but I looked at these guys, because I didn't want to dive in with these guys there. So I said, look, I'll, you know, please go out so I can pray, you know? So they said, okay. So they walked out, and I'm alone with Rabbi Yaakov Avu Chatzera in the middle of Egypt, you see, and then I realized why in the world is Rabbi Yaakov Avu Chatzira buried in the middle of this sewer called Damanhur. It's unbelievable when you look at it. You see the whole city. What's he doing here? And I realized because since he is a shurish of Mashiach ben Yosef, I realized that he is in the klipa, in the tumah, as a kapora for part of an atonement process for the Jewish people. Just like Yosef was buried in Egypt as an atonement for the Jewish people in Egypt. Because that's what a tzaddik is, as we will see, because the union of somebody in the union of Yosef is always somebody that's buried somewhere in the klipa, or they have to help atone for the Jewish people. You see. <laughs> and that verified what I thought. And then I understood that's why he's buried in Egypt. And that also means the second thing is that since the Jews are very low madrega, that means the, 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 uh, the, the soul of the Mashiach or the, or the or root soul of the Mashiach, Ben Yosef, is in the Klippa, is literally not only there to atone for the Jews, but that indicates that the Klippa, Yishmuel, has in captivity the soul of Mashiach ben Yosef. I realized that as I was looking at the kever of Rabbi Yaakov of Chatzera. And I began to, of course, say Tillam. And I had gone for a specific reason. Uh, basically, it wasn't for myself. It was because Jews were being killed at that time. If you remember, there was the Oslo Accord. 
and Jews were being killed. At that time, if you remember, Arafat was killing Jews. And, uh, you know, and, and Rabin was saying, you know, uh, this is the uh, sacrifice for peace. Get into that. But anyway, uh, this is what I realized. So I really went, not for myself, I went to pray, hopefully, that the Jews should be saved from the onslaught of Yishmael. And then before I left, you know, I was there for about a half hour, alone. And before I left, what was interesting, I looked at the Kevin and I said, Rabbi Yaakov I want to ask something of you personally. What is that? <clears throat> that I said to the Kever, I'm talking to the Kever, and I said, I have come to you, it's suicidal, because they're killing tourists all over the place, you know, and I'm in the middle of, and it's Ramadan, and I am in the middle of Damanhur, which is the worst place to be for a Jew. But I came, not for myself, but to be Mispal, hopefully, that Yishmuel will not kill Jews, uh, you know, in 1995. Anyway, uh, so I said that. So I said to him, do me a favor. I have been looking for an apartment in Israel for 25 years, but somehow nothing happens. You know, whatever, different opportunities fall apart. I said, do me a favor. In the merit that I came, get me an apartment in Israel. That's what I said to Rabbi Yaakov before I left. Okay. Anyway, so I go to the front of the, the house. It's a little house. And, of course, I open the door. And, of course, in walks the police chief. And my driver and also walked in is the three guards with machine guns. Could you imagine standing there with the Arabs and machine guns? So they're, they're standing there and they're silent. So I was wondering, like, what's going on? So then I realized they want a bribe. You see, I realized that they want a schmear, as they say. You know, that's what, because that's what they do. So anyway, so I took out 25 Egyptian pounds, which, by the way, was a lot of money in those days, you know, uh, and so on. And I hand it to the police chief. And the guy looks at me and he pushes it away, obviously, because he didn't want to take the money in front of the other people. It's a bribe. It's, you know, whatever you want to call it, to pay off. So I said, okay, I understand. And I give it to, you know, one of the guards, which obviously the police chief sees who it is. And I said, okay, so I said to the guy, okay, you know what to do with this. And, I, and that was it. Okay, so we all go back to the van. <clears throat> and I jump into the van, right? And we're on our way to Cairo, you see. And all of a sudden, my driver or actually the tour guide, turns around on the way, and you had to see this. I mean, going back, you know, there, there was no traffic coming there. But going back, there was no traffic either. Why? Because it was already night, and everybody was eating, because Ramadan, uh, you know, Arabs fast the whole day, and they eat at night. So the road was empty, you see. <clears throat> so we're on the way back to Cairo, which took another three hours, whatever, you see. <clears throat> and the, my tour guide turns around, and he looks at me and says, you know, you're a very lucky guy. So I look at him and I say, why? So he says to me, because really, you should never have gotten into that building. Period. Why? I asked him, why not? So he says to me, I'll tell you why. He says, the first thing you were very lucky is that you chose me. Because I'm a, a licensed tour guide. 
So therefore, they had to let you in. But if you had taken all the other guys, all the other guys were a bunch of hacks. They were not licensed. So what he would have done, the police chief, is refused you entry altogether because they're not licensed. So you could never have gotten in. And the second reason why you were very lucky, Ashgoha, right, is because the guy gave you a permit normally takes an hour to get a permit, at least. You had gotten there to the police station at 3.30. The problem was is that they closed the kever or the building at 4 o'clock p.m., which means that he would have given you a permit normally at 4.30. So what they would have told you, you can't get in, you've got to go to Alexandria and sleep overnight, and then come back the next day which, of course, I would not have done because I had a wedding the next day. And who in the world wants to stay in Egypt alone in Ramadan, uh, you know, in Alexandria? So I, I couldn't believe it. So I said to the guy, I said, then why did I get a permit in five minutes? That's what I said to him. So he says, I'll tell you why. Because apparently an hour and a half before we came, which is something probably like, two o'clock. He said, uh, there was a group of people, nobody knows who, who had gone to the police station and apparently they had visited the grave because they got a permit and they had to wait. But since, and then they left. So since they left, fine. That means the police chief had a permit from the previous, the previous group. So what he did is when you came, he didn't have to write a new permit. He used the old permit Right? And that's why in five minutes you were able to go. So I realized the incredible hashgoho of the whole matter, you see, that the, uh, for what, whatever reason, the hashgoho was that I, have, I should go and I have to go to the grave of Aruchatzera and pray for the sake of Yishmuel not killing the Jewish people. So I realized the tremendous hashgoho in both of these things, in selecting the right, right tour guide, number one, and the second thing, where I got a permit, and I didn't have, because I would not have gone to Alexandria, of course not. I would have gone back to Cairo, because my flight was out of Egypt, Cairo, at 1 a.m. by El Al. You see, <clears throat> so I would never have gone to Alexandria, which means that I would not have gone in the, ke ke the Kever, and they would have sent me home without any prayers. You see. Now, the interesting thing about that is when I got first, so I got to Cairo, by the way, and uh, of course, and I waited till one o'clock, whatever. And um, uh, when I got finally to the airport in the El Al terminal in Cairo, you know, the drive left for the first time. And I had this drive for over a month. It was insane. It, 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 I, it's hard to describe that. It was an obsession that you must go and pray at the Kever of Abu Khatsera. And I had no idea why, you see, and I could not get rid of the obsession. Could you imagine having an obsession that you must, it's a compulsion that you cannot stop. And as soon as I got to Cairo, by El Al, it, it disappeared completely, you see. Uh, now, therefore, I got on the plane at 1 a.m. to El Al, and of course, uh, the fear of being in Egypt in Ramadan left as soon as El Al took off from the airport for obvious reasons. <clears throat> now, 
What's interesting is the next day it was, right, Friday, right, or was it, no, it was Thursday, and I arrived at 3 a.m., you know, Thursday, uh, you know, Wednesday night, 3 a.m., and of course I went back and so on, you know, and that morning, Thursday morning, you know, I said to my brother-in-law, who and then dealt with apartments, you know, he was always trying to tell me opportunities, you know, different apartments that maybe you could buy. And he, he's done that over the years many times. Uh, so in Thursday morning, he comes over to me and says, you know, I have an interesting proposition for you. I have an apartment that is not built yet, but could be built. And maybe you'd like to see it or, you know, buy it. And that was the apartment that I now own in Jerusalem. Wow. The incredible thing is that I've been looking for an apartment for 25 years. And less than 24 hours of visiting Abu Khatsera, I got my apartment, you see, Thank which you. is an astounding concept. Yeah. So it's, it's amazing. I mean, there's no question that I was answered. He answered my tefillah. See, he was a maid at He interceded be, before the heavenly tribunal. And apparently my argument convinced him, whatever. And, in this, and I said, tell him, of course. And in that schus, I actually had an apartment Right? Less than 24 hours after I left Abu Khatera. That's what happened. And I have never had that obsession again. And uh, this is what happened. It's a very spooky story. And guess what? You know, this was in February of 1995. And I told you last time, right? On November 5th of 1995, of that year, Rabin was assassinated. When? Yud Al-Khajran on Rokhli Mena's Yod side. He died. You see? So it's amazing when you put it all together. You know, the concept of Avu Khatsira's suffering as an atonement for the Jewish people and Yishmol, their Klippa is over Avu Khatsira and that's called being unique from his Kedusha. You see? <clears throat> and that's why Avu Khatsira is buried in the middle of Egypt. I mean, you can't believe what a filthy place that was, you know, and it, it, there was mud all over the place, you know. And like I said, what in the world was I doing there, you know, and that he's buried there, right? And the, uh, and, uh, the reason why he's buried there, of course, we know, which I, the original question, which I, I mentioned, why did he die in Damanhur? And why did God not want him to be buried back in Morocco? And the answer is because he was the one that saved the Jewish people in 1942. Had he been buried, reburied, I should say, in Morocco, Morocco is west of El Alamein. That means that Al-Fasi could not have gone to him to pray for the Jewish people because the, the Al-Fasi could not have penetrated the German line because he would be west of the German line. So therefore, God made sure that he was buried in Damanhur, which is east, right? It's east of El Alamein, and therefore Al-Fasi could go to him, pray at his kever, and he would save the Jews. In other words, people understood then, in 1942, why God did not want it to be reburied in Morocco, and why he created two thunderstorms before they were taking him out. And imagine that, that from, 19, from 1883 to 1942, God already planned his burial, so that he could save the Jews of Israel from not being slaughtered. 
Who does that remind you of? Rachel. Rachel died on the way, right? She was buried in Beis Lechem because the Jews, when they are exiled to Babylon, on the way to Babylon, they would be able to pray at her grave and Rachel would be able to save them. You see? And that's ex- so what happened to him is exactly what happened to Rachel Imenu, which again, you know, it bolts my entire understanding that he's a Sherish of Mashiach bin Yosef. You see? Because his tafkir is the same. The concept of Mashiach bin Yosef, or all those people who are Shroshim, are always in the Klippa. They are always downtrodden. You see, that's why Moshe Rabbeinu was, uh, you know, exiled from Egypt for 54 years. Because that's the concept of Mashiach bin Yosef, whoever's a Sherish. That he has to suffer for the Jewish people, for the whole Jewish people. And that is also why not only Abu Chatzir is buried in Egypt, which he still is, by the way, right? But that's why Moshe Rabbeinu had to be buried, or rather, he, 54 years he was in the Golis, right? And that is why Yosef Atzadik had to go to prison for 13 years, you see? And that is why, by the way, Moshe Rabbeinu is not buried in Israel, because he is buried in Chutzlot, which is tremendous Yisurin for his Neshama, because since he's the Indian of Mashiach ben Yosef, he again has to suffer for the Jewish people, you see? And that's why Rochel died on the way and not buried in Hebron with Yaakov, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and obviously Sora, Rivka, and Meir. Same idea. All these people who are connected to the union of Mashiach ben Yosef, you know, as a Shurish and so on, or, or some type of tremendous connection, Neshama-wise, suffer because of the Jewish people. Because that's what, that's what Yosef did, you see. Yosef took on the shlichus of Mashiach ben Yosef, and therefore his tafkid, and that's why he went to Egypt alone in Golis, because his tafkid is what his purpose is to suffer for the for the Yisrael, for the Jewish people, and that suffering atones is part of the atonement that God uses, right, as as a merit for the Jewish people, so that they don't have to suffer. So look at all these people. You have Yosef HaTzadik, you have Moshe Rabbeinu, who was in, in Ethiopia for 54 years. And then he's not even buried in Eretz Israel. And then, of course, you have Rochel Yimeinu, who's buried outside of Yaakov Aminu in, a, in an Arab town called Beis Lechem. You see? And then you have Aruch HaTzera. All these people suffer for the sake of the Jews, you see? And their suffering, in many ways, alleviates or, or substitutes for the suffering of the Mashiach ben Yosef. Uh, excuse me, for the suffering of the Jewish people, for the atonement that they have to go through. You see? So that is a story where you now begin to understand the union of Yosef, of the whole union of Rochel Imenu, that she is selected to suffer for the Jewish people so that they can have an atonement, and that is the essence of what she does. You see? That's why it says, Rochel Mevakor She cries for the Jewish people because her concept, her whole reason why she's buried in, you know, in, in Beis Lechem, away from, imagine being away from Avram, Yitzchuk, and Yaakov, right? Sora, Rivka, and Leah, and Odom, Marishan, and Chava. I mean, those are the people. And she's not, she's all alone 
in the middle of an Arab town. How do you explain that? That's what it means, you see? So the union of Yusuf is that they suffer for the sake of the Jewish people, and their suffering alleviates an enormous amount of Yisurim. So therefore, as a result of their suffering, the Jewish people have a Yeshua remedy. What is that? They have the Geula itself. So I wanted to illustrate this whole concept uh, with an incredible personal experience where uh, whatever, and to this day I have never had a desire to go back to the Kever. It's amazing yeah. what that impression was. I can't even begin to describe it. It would not leave me alone. Every time I woke up immediately, I was obsessed. You know, it's like, it's like a guy on drugs. Well, he must have his fix, his heroin, and he can't stop. That's what it felt like for two months. Finally, thank God, after I did go in Ramadan, which is a suicide trip, I guarantee you, it left, never returned. But okay. Have a connection to I, I say that again. Have a connection to Mashiach Ben Yosef. You have to speak louder. You have a connection to Mashiach Ben Yosef. Well, you know, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But whatever it is, so I'm telling you. But you know, but what was interesting, and that's how I finished off. You know, I got my apartment in Israel less than 24 hours of going to the Kever. And I've been looking for that for 24, 25 years. Could you imagine? Crazy. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, what are the odds? Apparently, Rabbi Yaakov of Chatzera liked what I did, whatever, and he decided to, you know, plead my case in front of the heavenly tribunal, and that's it, and I got it, and that was it. It's amazing. I, mean, I was stunned, obviously, you know. So that's a personal experience that happened all connected to the Yotzai of Rochel Ibenu, to Yaakov of Chatzera, to the whole concept of the Indian of Mashiach Ben Yosef, and so on. You know, fascinating story. Well, I hope you all enjoyed it. Unbelievable, Rabbi. Maybe you'll take us one time to go visit the grave. Be to go to the grave of who? The rabbi. Who, Rabbi Yaakov of Chatzera? Yeah, why not? Now you know how to get us around there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I can just see it now, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, it's really the it's, it's shocking. Is, the difference is, Rabbi, is that the people you're going with, their birthplace is Cairo, and they speak the language, so you're 10 steps ahead this time. Is that true? You were born in Cairo? Yeah, my mom was. Yes, oh, wow. So you, that means your mother was. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. And they all speak no. Arabic. Who, who, uh, who speaks Arabic? I do. We all do. Uh, Rachel. Rachel. You, you, you all speak Arabic? No. I understand it, but I don't speak it. Wow. That's My interesting. My were all born in Egypt, so they only spoke Arabic at home. Aha. Uh-huh. Wow. That's in, that's interesting. Now we could be your tour guide technically. <laughs> that's right, yeah. But isn't it amazing that had I chosen the other people, I would not have been able to get in. They would have sent me home. So now I have a question. So to to tie up the story, why did your wife give you the book? 
because I don't know what she was thinking, but somehow she felt that maybe I'll be convinced by, oh, well, let me tell you something. When she gave me the book, this was in November or whatever, you know, she puts the book down with the page opened to Shmuel Elbaz. So maybe she felt, you know, and she had read a little before. So I think she felt that maybe she can go, get me to go to Egypt to, uh, to Yaakov Hatzera, although she could not in any way uh, anticipate what I would feel. It, what, that obsession that I got, that drive, which is completely overpowering, was uh, something she could never have anticipated. But she just maybe felt that, you know, although I want to tell you something, she thought I was out of my mind to go to Egypt. In fact, she told me, maybe you write a will. She didn't think she didn't think I was coming back. Wow. I remember they were killing tourists in 1994 because that was the time there was a whole rebellion going on. So not only were they killing tourists, that's number one. I'm in the Arab town, a complete Arab town. It's like going to Ramallah. Your life isn't worth five cents. And not only that, but it was Ramadan, which is their holy month. Which then they really go crazy to kill Jews. So I literally took my life in my hands to go and pray. And it wasn't even for myself, like I said. It was to pray by Abu Chatzir that he should stop Yishmuel Arafat from killing Jews. That's the only reason why I went. Crazy. You hear the news this week? You know the crown prince of Saudi Arabia? Mohammed bin Salman, yeah. He said his mother's Jewish from Ethiopia. I didn't see that. Yep. Are you are you serious? Yep. His and mother's an Ethiopian Jew? Yeah, how could that be? How did this Arab guy marry a Jew? No, there are many Arabs that are married Jew, Jews. Yeah. Yeah, because what obviously happened is uh, his mother must have converted to Islam. That's why. You know, look, I used to have a car mechanic, you know, and he's an Arab. He, he was born in Lebanon. And then after using him for many years, the guy tells me that his mother was really Jew, is really Jewish. Yeah. What happened was, obviously, you know, she probably married some Arab. She, you know, married his, uh, his father, who was an Arab, for whatever reason, you know. And she's Jewish. So uh, it's amazing. This guy who's an Arab, you know, is an Arab, whatever, he's Jewish. But that's amazing if that's true. I didn't hear that. Have the video of it. That, that he actually said his mother was Jewish. He said it or someone said it? Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salam Abdulaziz Saud. Yes. That's him. That, wow. Yeah. That's astounding. You know. That Rabbi, really is. You know when you said, May I Yarim Evion? Is that what's going to happen to Abu Khatsera's grandpa? They put that, him in say the, that again. Say that again. That what? Oh, may Ashpo is your man viewing, yes? So he was born, you're saying he's buried really in the garbage. So yes. Also, exactly, exactly. Ashpo is exactly. He's a very good. I'm glad you pointed that out. Also, I forgot to point that out. Exactly. That's the concept of Mashiach ben Yosef or the Shurish of ben Yosef. These people in some way, wait, these people in some way, uh, I hate to use the expression, but they are buried in the garbage. Why? 
The garbage doesn't mean garbage. It means a clipper. It means a tumor. They are buried. Why? Because their neshama suffer. You see, because they're surrounded by tumor. You see? Evil. And therefore, that suffering that they go through is an atonement, is a kapara, in order to allow the Jews to be zoicha, to merit the redemption. And all of them do that. You see? He's desecrating his grave all the time. He's also in garbage there. Oh, yes, and I cannot... You had to see that place. There was a house with him in it, but in front of the house, it was all mud. You had to see this place. It's like, well, who in the world wants to be buried here? The whole place was filled with mud. And he's buried smack in the middle of an Arab town called Damanhur. And I'm telling you, I had to see this town. Half the people in the town were riding around on donkeys. Imagine? Yeah, it's primitive. Yeah, Egypt is a primitive place. You know, especially this, you know. But, uh, but the amazing thing is God, again, the same thing. Just like Rochli Menu was had to die and be buried in a place not with the Jewish people, because the union of Yosef is to be apart from the Jewish people, and therefore that's the kapora for the Jewish people, and that's why she died and had to be buried in Beis Lechem. And Yaakov Avinu knew that because remember when he met her, he cried because he sees she would not be buried with him. But that's the concept of Yosef, you see, okay? And that's the same thing with Avuchatzera. He had to die in Damanhur and not make it to Israel. And he couldn't bring him back to, uh, what do you call it, um, to uh, Morocco, because then he would be west of the Germans. So Alfas could never have gotten through to pray at its kever. So he had to be buried east of the German lines, which is where El Alamein is. And therefore, he could pray in Damanhur, which is east of the German line of El Alamein, where the war was going to happen. So he could pray and amazing, Avuchat Sarah is what saved the Jewish people. Not just for Israel, but he turned around the whole war effort. Because they lost El Alamein and they never won a battle after that. Historians consider the battle of El Alamein to be the turning point of the entire World War II. Isn't that? And that's, what, when, that's when the obsession entered my mind because that was when I realized who he was and then all of a sudden you know wow I just I couldn't shake it for two months you see okay any more questions this, this rabbi the man on the flying carpet they called it Aladdin well maybe it may be exactly Aladdin in the flying carpet huh yeah and, and that's where they get the name Abu Chatzera, yeah. from this guy who flew on the carpet. Exactly. You know, from him, this tremendous sadik, tremendous yeah. mukubal, obviously. Imagine a guy flying on a, imagine somebody flying over a carpet on the Medi- on, over the Mediterranean. It's incredible. Yeah. But remember, look, he was the great-grandfather of Yaakov Abu Chatzera, if I remember correctly. And therefore, they called him the master of the carpet. Uh, I, I, they should have said Abu Chatzera, you know, the master of the flying carpet, but they left out the word flying. So, Rabbi, so the, yes. uh, the Mabul ended up happening 
seven days later. So that takes us to Thursday? Wednesday. Next Wednesday. Yeah, the Malbuth started on the 17th day, if you remember, Noyach, of Cheshvan. Tuesday is election. Wednesday is the Mabul. And there will be a Mabul if Trump wins, so... Uh, well, yeah. how will it come down? Will it come down as a clipper? You remember what I said last time? That okay. the Mabul was really the messianic light that came down, but it came down in the form of water because they were not deserving, right? But remember, the original marble came down in what? As an oration. See, the messianic light. And that is a very interesting sign next week. When Trump wins, the next day they'll find out, and that means the Gula may begin next Wednesday. Do you think the Gula is going to start next Wednesday? Well, I'm just saying, I'm just giving you the simonim. You see? The rabbi and if he doesn't win, Rabbi? I don't want to, I, I, I believe he will win. I, I Hopefully he will win big. And and um, if, when, if the Gula start, uh, let's say the Gula does start, Bezat Hashem, and that's the start of it. But Hashem... Like the the, the 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 tide will turn for the Jewish people because right now, I mean, across the whole world, we're really you know in the slumps of things. Yes. Very dark. Yeah. Once the once the Gula starts, the messianic process starts. Then I once said, then that process is unstoppable and irrevocable. It cannot be stopped because it's beitoy. It's the deadline. And it's irreversible. It cannot be turned back. And then incredible things will begin happening the whole year. Yeah. That's the sign. If incredible things happen, then you know that we're probably in it. You see? But the key is, like I said, the key is that Mashiach ben Yosef has to be removed from his klipa, from what's his prison. I thought there were so many chances to, for that to happen. So so many what? So many chances. Like uh, we hoped in Rosh Hashanah, and then hope in Yom Kippur, and now we hope now. And every every step we're hoping the picky dust starts. So so, yes. so how do we know it starts? You won't know. He will know. Not you. You'll know eventually. Got it. You know what I'm saying? Everybody How will know eventually. That eventually? Yeah, it's very hard to say, but I'll tell you one thing, it's got to go quick. Once it goes, it goes. The whole thing is to get there, you know. But once it starts, it really starts. And we're going to know? Like, we'll know when it starts? With all the miracles? No, you won't. Well, you, you're going to be begin seeing. It's like today. Everybody sees what's going on in this world. It's crazy. Like the whole world is, is uh, you know, people say every day there's something new that comes out. Uh, you know? Philadelphia is crazy. Right? Yeah, I heard that Philadelphia is what? Is, is on, what are they, killing everybody there? There was yeah. a black man who took a knife going towards the police. The police said put it down. He didn't. They shot and killed him. Now they're looting. They're, bra- they're breaking, breaking every store. They, they're doing bad. Wow. Which, by the way, 
By the way, Amy's husband. He's part of affected by the looting. Why? What does he have to do with Philadelphia? His stores are in all these areas, so they all are getting looted. Really? His insurance, yeah. Yeah, but still, wow. Now the mayor of Philadelphia said police don't do anything to the looters. Let them do whatever they want. But we can't yeah. open our stores. No. Crazy. Wow. You're allowed That's to stop only if you don't get paid. You know, you know, Brooklyn is still in lockdown, Rabbi. And they just announced it is. I'll tell you one thing, one, the, 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 the uh, good side of this, although it's terrible, but what, the only good it can come out is this reminds people that there's no law and order. So they're going to come out in droves for Trump. Rabbi, I tried twice to go early voting. The line was an hour long outside, around the corner. Forget about it. I couldn't go. Yeah, and, and they all want to vote for Trump. Bezat Hashem, they all vote for Trump. Yeah, and, that's right. And, uh, and that they don't, they don't rig the system. Yeah, they don't cheat. No, listen, it's up to God, not up to them. I agree with that. You know, I mean, you know, like I say, you know, this, this election is not between Trump and Biden. It's between enough. America dying and becoming a communist country, which I, if you remember, you saw, you, you saw the last year, by the way, right? Yes. So I, I gave 11 reasons why, you know, it's not reasonable to assume that uh, Biden will win. God's, God is not going to destroy America. It's because it's, it's not about something bad happening. America goes communist, that's over. They're not going to turn around anymore. It's over for America. And then it's over for the world. And then all the, the evil will come out. Russia, that that's the the last gilah that has to happen. That the fall of America. No, not the Tavshe Beisov. Right. That was true of the Rasha Beisov, not the Tavshe Beisov. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Rashi. We're not we're not dealing with here with the Rasha Beisov anymore. We are dealing with the Tavshe of, and they are part of that, you see. So it's not going to happen. But listen, I'm sure Trump is going to win, and that, and I guarantee you once he wins, he's going to clean up the mess. Yeah. I'm sure he's going to go after Hillary and Biden and everybody else. You think there'll be riots afterwards? Yes. Yeah, but it doesn't make a difference because Trump is not going to be the president. He'll remain the president, which means he's, I guarantee you he's going to declare the Insurrection Act, which what means he can immediately intervene everything. He'll put out all the riots within two days. Why doesn't he do it now? Because, because he, he, nah, because uh, people say you're a dictator. Once he wins, then he has nothing to lose, because anyway he can't run. Again. You see, so he's biding his time. Look, it's a, it's a very important political move. He doesn't want to look like he's a dictator. But once he wins, I guarantee you, he's going to call out the National Guard, the army. He's going to put a stop to all of this, no matter who they are, because the Insurrection Act allows him to intercede in any American city. You see? Hey, Shana. Open, and yeah. open, open up... Uh 
all our businesses and schools and everything, Bezat Hashem. Exactly. Right. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah. He, want, he wants to open everything. What was that? Oh, yeah. And by the way, it's a miracle that uh, Lady Amy Comey Barrett was elected. They're going crazy. Correct. That's not a miracle. What you see is I once gave a share a long time ago, and I said that Trump has four jobs. One is to assist Israel to do the Tikkun. The second job, and I elaborated in that shear quite a while ago, and the second job is to protect Israel from its enemies, right? The UN, Europe, uh, Iran, and so on. The third job is to make America great, so then everybody who wants to curry favor with America is also going to join Israel, which is exactly what's happening. And the fourth thing is to purify America. And to make America pure, you've got to change the courts. Because it is the court system that the Hashkosa emanates from. You see? So he has put in over 300 conservative judges, and he now stacked the court in his favor. You are looking, he is, he is actually fulfilling why God appoint, appointed him. Wow. And I said this, I don't know, three years ago. It's, un, it's unfolding exactly the way I said it. You know? What else is his job if he did all four of them? No, his job is to maintain that process. That's why he will win. <clears throat> his job is to get all the Arabs to line up with Israel. Yishmael. And I mentioned that. It's the end of the clip of Yishmael. His job is to bring all the Arabs. His job is to give Israel back to, uh, to Jews. You know, his job is to get rid of the whole Palestinian claim. You see? And to, go, and to uh, make sure that Israel is not attacked by Iran. Oh, there's a lot of fireworks that are going to happen after this. You know? I'll tell you one thing. When Trump wins, you're going to see an unbelievable celebration and fireworks all over the place. By the way, Rabbi, it's just amazing to me with Ashat Noah, and they didn't follow the Sheva Mitzvah. Can you do that somewhere? Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noah? Yes. And now the new judge is standing for everything of the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noah. Yeah, she's a religious Catholic. That's right. Exactly. 